I'd just like to welcome you all here from the International Growth Centre. This is our final public lecture of Growth Week, which is our annual conference uh, held always in this third week of September. Uh, I'm Jonathan Leap. I'm the Executive Director of the International Growth Centre. And this is really for us very much the culmination of, of what has been a very exciting week in which we bring together uh, researchers in all of our partner countries and beyond. We operate in 15 countries across Africa and Asia with senior policymakers uh, from our countries as well. And uh, this evening is again as we've had the previous evenings, and I hope you've been able to join us for this, at least some of those as well, is an event where we're very pleased to bring together both a very senior uh, policymaker um, and a senior figure and colleague uh, from the academic world. Uh, and really in this way to be talking about the important growth issues, bringing together both the challenges on the policy side and those uh, on the academic side and how we can bring those two uh, together in the service of better policy. So it's a great pleasure to introduce the chair for tonight. Now let him introduce the, uh, the, the speakers. And that's my colleague, Professor Francesco uh, Gazzetti. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm Francesco Caselli. I'm a professor here at the London School of Economics. It's a great privilege for me to chair uh, tonight's uh, session that features an exceptionally distinguished economist and public servant who has had a brilliant career uh, following his studies at the University of Delhi and then at Oxford, uh, began at the World Bank uh, for, uh, from 1969 to 1979, uh, I learned today that he was the youngest person to ever be promoted to division chief uh, when, when he was serving at the World Bank. But I think he is even more uh, well known uh, in both uh, in academia and in policy circles for his uh, very, very important work uh, in the Indian uh, public sector and in, in, in government. Uh, that began in 1979, where uh, uh, for about 20 years he uh, held uh, uh, very, very senior positions in uh, various uh, different branches of government. And in that period, he is particularly associated with the um, economic reforms that, especially in the 90s, uh, have been the subject of so much study and so much commentary uh, about the uh, growth experience of India and that uh, many other countries have been trying to uh, uh, imitate and, and follow. Uh, he then uh, spent a few years at the IMF as the director of the newly created Independent Evaluation Office, and then he went back to Indian government to be even more uh, at the center of things uh, by being for 10 years the deputy chairman of the Planning Commission, uh, which uh, as almost I'm sure everybody knows is pretty much the most important policy-making uh, position in the Indian government in terms of the economics. And that position he held until uh, 2014. So Montek uh, is obviously incredibly well placed to uh, talk about the challenges that uh, uh, a, a good economist uh, faces in trying to implement policy. And obviously India is a country that uh, is particularly interesting to uh, students of development, not only because it's so big, uh, but also because of the unique challenges it faces, um, the interaction between politics and economics in particular being one of the aspects that I'm sure uh, uh, Montek will address, and because he has been at the center of, of so much of the experience of India. 
After a um, Montek will give his address, I will then uh, give the floor to uh, our own Nick Stern, uh, uh, my colleague in the Economics Department, uh, who also knows a thing or two about uh, trying to uh, bring good economics to uh, policy making. And uh, I'm sure that uh, the combination of the two will be well, well more than some of the parts. So, Montek, if you want to start. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, uh, Professor Caselli. Thank you very much. Let me say at the very outset, it's, it's quite a privilege to both participate in the Growth Week uh, celebrations uh, and also to give the concluding lecture on this occasion. You know, I must say that I'm very conscious that uh, I've been attending some uh, very fine uh, seminar, seminars where actually people have picked issues and subjected them to some kind of uh, analytical research tests. I'm not going to be doing that. I mean, uh, mine is at best an analytical narrative of what's been going on in India and what can we sort of conclude about uh, how well has India done, what are its prospects, what worked, etc. Now, you know, ever since uh, Amartya Sen popularized the conception of argumentative Indians, we are very aware that almost any statement uh, can be contested. And India, it will be contested. In fact, in India, even the facts will be contested. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to sort of, uh, while I will take you through an analytical narrative, wherever it seems to me that I'm saying something that somebody else would contest, I'll draw attention to it. I think that's important because, you know, in a, a research uh, organization, in a university, I think these issues should be contested and sort of raised above the level of ordinary political discourse and subjected to formal testing. So with, those, uh, with, with that disclaimer, uh, what I'd like to do is to present a lecture which is effectively in two parts. Uh, the whole theme of the Growth Week um, was outlined in the very introductory uh, session by uh, the head of the LSE and also by other luminaries that Growth Week is all about growth and inclusion. And the central theme that you really can't achieve any worthwhile welfare objective in a developing country if you don't have growth. So I was very pleased to hear that. And also that that's not enough. Uh, there's got to be inclusive growth because that has been the mantra that has actually guided Indian policy for quite a long time. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in the last two plans, the mantra for the 11th plan was faster and more inclusive growth. And in the 12th plan, we realized that we're leaving out sustainability, which is actually very important, especially sustainability is inclusion for future generations. So the mantra was faster, more inclusive, and sustainable growth. So what I want to, what I want to do is to uh, present a little bit what has been India's success in achieving these objectives. Uh, and I think one important point there is that on the growth, I'll talk about growth and I'll talk about inclusiveness separately. Uh, about growth, the narrative has changed quite a bit in the last couple of years because we did quite well and then floundered. In the last three years, India's growth has been low. And I want to sort of put that in some context. So the first slide is simply allowing you to get a picture of how has India performed 
compared to other relevant comparators. Now, this stuff is all from the WEO database of the IMF because we have different fiscal years and everybody else has calendar years. So if you're thinking or whatever you read in the Indian newspapers, the numbers may not be exactly the same. See, the important messages that come out of this table, first of all, that, you know, let's be clear, China has been way above India in terms of growth rates for 30 years. India's growth rate was quite low until about 1980, about 3.5%, if you take the average of the 60s and 70s. That's not there in this, in this table. And then in the 1980s, we started to do some reforms, uh, very gradual, very limited, and the growth rate actually improved to 5.5%. Generally, in 1991 onwards, we did much bolder, more holistic reforms, in other words, more holistically conceived and broader based, but still very gradual. So while the, the reform agenda was broad, uh, the pace of reform was somewhat slow. Some of my friends would say glacial, but I think that's a little unfair. It was slow. And one of the issues that has uh, come out is that, you know, we frequently like to say uh, the, the reforms led to faster growth. Uh, and in the debate, uh, I think Danny Roderick and Arvind Subramaniam made the point that, you know, the 90s, in the 90s, India didn't do that much better than the 80s. So were these reforms of 1991 all that important? Now, there was a sort of political economy behind that uh, argument because the 91 reforms are the ones that, that opened up the economy. I mean, the 80s were hesitant domestic liberalization, and then in 1990s we did more of that. But the 80s didn't do very much of the opening up, uh, opening up in terms of trade, foreign investment, technology, etc. So I think their, their argument was that maybe the Washington Consensus Group overemphasized the opening up because actually it didn't lead to very much different performance from the previous period. I think that's actually wrong. Uh, simply because the previous high growth was to some extent due to a somewhat unsustainable fiscal position which led to a crisis. And secondly, because of this gradualism, the real benefits of the opening up were only going to be apparent much later. And that is evident if you look at the, the column which deals with 2000 to 2007, just before the Lehman Brothers crisis, when India suddenly goes up to 7.2% on average. Uh, and, you know, the difference between India and China, China is still growing faster, but the difference between India and China begins to narrow down. In the year 2008, immediately after uh, the Lehman Brothers crisis, India did surprisingly well. I mean, we, like everybody else, we introduced a fiscal stimulus, uh, and while the growth rate fell in 2008 uh, to about 6 point something percent, it recovered very quickly in the next two years, and we felt wonderful. Uh, and all over the world, everybody was saying, oh, great, this is a new star on the horizon, and people kept talking about India and China and so forth. And I should say that, uh, you know, while we we're always pleased at that, uh, it was a bit exaggerated. I mean, China is, you know, four times India's GDP and growing faster. But there was no doubt that it looked as if India was transiting to a growth path which might begin to look like China, especially since China was expected to slow down. So that looked pretty good. And I think if you look at this period, uh, one other important point. I mean, of course, India's grown faster than the advanced economies throughout this period. 
It also grew faster than the emerging markets without China and India. So if you look at uh, uh, Rho Arabic 2 Italic 3, which is emerging markets without China and India, India is doing a lot better in virtually each of these years. The change actually occurs in the last three years when suddenly India's growth rate falls from something like 7.5 or so in the previous 10 years to about 4.4. Now, I should say, by the way, that in our own uh, presentation, and probably I've been guilty of it myself, uh, we often would choose con convenient periods uh, when, in fact, India's growth rate was higher than 7.5. But the fact is, over any long period, or if you do any sort of smoothing, 7.5 uh, is really what was the best performance over this period, though in certain periods, almost close to 9. But those are much shorter periods. So, you know, going down from 7.6 to 4.4, of course, we somewhat unfortunately uh, did this just before a general election, uh, with results that should, <laughs> shouldn't surprise anyone. Um, and obviously, during a general election, there's great focus on, you know, what's happening, mismanagement, et cetera, et cetera. But it's important to, uh, to ask the question, what, to what do we attribute uh, this big sharp fall? Uh, is it temporary? Is it the new normal? So should India forget about seven and a half and eight, and this is really what it's capable of? Well, you know, I will hide behind the certificate given by Raghuram Rajan, our governor of the Reserve Bank, who some time ago said that he believed that the, the decline that took place uh, was about one-third due to global factors, because it's true that the global factors were also uh, very adverse. You want to get the previous slide? No, not this one, but yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then you need this one to find that. Okay. Um, and like if everything had been hunky-dory domestically, uh, it would have gone down from 7.5 to maybe 6.4, 6.5. It actually fell to 4.4. Now, that decline is due to domestic constraints, and I think we were quite frank about this even during the previous year. It was never the position of the previous government that the slowdown is due to only global factors. There were domestic factors involved. Now, in that situation, uh, how do we look ahead? Clearly, the first priority has to be uh, getting these domestic short-term constraints out of the way and getting back to what would be a more normal process, given that the world economy is not in great shape. Once that's done, one goes to the longer-term issue of getting back to 75 and 8%. Hopefully, at this point, we've got these slides to where I want them. What? I'm saying, why does it... We're getting all this... Don't, don't worry. I mean, that's because... Is it in another place, or is it... Uh, no. We'll see. Is this one? Just go back to the slide, show. Uh... Yeah, go to the next slide. Yeah. This one? No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. okay. Right. So this is, this, is, this is the relevant slide on the immediate priority. And I think the immediate priority, at least as I've listed it, uh, the first one is you've got to correct the macroeconomic deterioration that I talked about. And I'll just come to that in a second. 
But uh, along with that, we had a lot of problems. One is many environmental and forest clearances for infrastructure projects somehow began to hold up projects. Now, I should say that this is one of those contestable positions because many of my friends amongst the NGOs would say that that was all protecting the environment. My personal view is that I don't think our regulations were transparent enough and clear enough, and they sort of lent themselves to project promoters cutting corners uh, and whoever wanted to interrupt a project because of process violation could actually do so. A bit of a mess needs to be sorted out. Second is we faced a number of problems with the large public-private partnership projects in infrastructure. We had an excellent discussion on this problem in the previous session. But I want to mention that what happened was that in India, India actually was identified by the World Bank as having had the second largest or the largest number of public-private partnership projects a couple of years ago. So in one sense, bringing private projects into infrastructure was a major success of policy. But they did run into problems, and we needed somehow to address those problems, and we still need to. I mean, some of those problems are because the chaps have given unrealistic bids and simply can't uh, meet the bid requirements. Others say, well, look, we, we bid on the basis that clearances would be available in a certain period, and they've been too much delayed, and it's not our fault. But, you know, the concession agreement made no provision for that, which is, I think, a weakness it should have. And many others also found that the financial situation, the global financial situation post the Lehman Brothers uh, collapse uh, had changed, uh, whereas they had put in these bids on the assumption uh, that finance would be freely available at very low level prices, et cetera, et cetera. So a mixture of problems, well, whatever it is, they need to be resolved. There was also a problem of government decision-making having slowed down. That could be partly due to the fact that you, you have a government coming to the end of its tenure. It's a coalition government. Uh, lots of concern about uh, whether decisions that are being taken to speed up projects are unfairly benefiting certain people. And the background of all this is the fear of crony capitalism and a very active press wanting to point out who's it who's doing something wrong, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it did lead to a slowing down. And I think there were a number of taxation-related issues which created a very negative impression uh, amongst investors. Some of them were, I think, just unfortunate. But these are the issues that, in the short run, need to be addressed. So can we go to the macroeconomic slide, if you can find it? Yeah, that's, that's it. I think this, this I, I'm not going to go on. I'll leave this slide for a little while. But the important point I want to make here is that, you know, um, the fiscal deficit of the center and the states combined uh, in the year 2007-2008, before the Lehman Brothers, had fallen to 4% of GDP. We then had our fiscal stimulus, and it went up to 8.3, and then 9.4. And quite honestly, uh, instead of 9.4, it should have been reversed. That didn't happen. Uh, and why it didn't happen is actually well worth going into in great detail. My own, my own suspicion is that the fiscal stimulus was too much in terms of uh, consumption support and expansion of subsidies. Uh, 
I mean, had it been a stimulus that was targeted to investment in infrastructure, it would have been very easy to scale it down. The problem, of course, is that you never have enough projects lined up. So if you really want to give a stimulus, and that happened in the United States also, you just reduce taxes and all the rest of it, and those are the things that are very difficult to reverse. But why am I paying drawing so much attention to it? I think two things happened. One, the fiscal deficit went up. Uh, second, the current account deficit increased uh, from, a, from, a, from a deficit of 1.3% in 2007. It went up to over 4% in 2011, 12, and 2012, 13. And inflation during this period also edged up very substantially. And there was a perception uh, that, you know, we are not going to be able to bring inflation down. And you see the impact of that in this uh, uh, row which deals with household financial savings. Now, I think compare the fiscal deficit with the row just below it. See, in 2007-2008, the combined fiscal deficit of the center and the states was 4% of GDP, and household financial savings were 11.6% of GDP, which really meant that something of the order of 7% of GDP was the financial contribution of household savings to the rest of the economy. Then what happened is the fiscal deficit expanded, and the share of household financial savings declined. Why it declined, that's also a subject for good economic research. But I certainly think that the rise in inflation would have had something to do with it. People are not going to invest in financial instruments if inflation is very high. And the real return, to the, certainly to bank depositors, becomes negative. So you've got this absurd situation where in the year 2012, in the year 2011-2012, the household financial savings, in other words, household savings going to the financial sector are 7% of GDP, and the government is taking away from the financial system 8% of GDP. So actually, the, the crowding out phenomenon is best measured by this comparison. And there's no question from these numbers that during this period, the crowding out must have been immense. So it shouldn't surprise anyone uh, that investment went down, and you can see that, and also that the growth rate went down. So the first task before any government should be to reverse this macroeconomic deterioration. That's what actually the previous government said it would do. The, present, the new government has also endorsed that target for the current year, and hopefully will be continuing to do it, and that's what they've said. So as far as government declaration of policy on the fiscal side, the, the message that's coming out is exactly the right one. Now, on the other issues, uh, go back to this one. Uh, first priority. Well, the other environment clearances, resolving problems facing large PPP projects, expediting government decision making, all this has been put high on the agenda from what I see in the newspapers. Uh, of the new government. And, you know, one, one reason, I think, why uh, they would be in a good position to do it is that unlike the previous government, which was a coalition uh, of different parties, all with uh, significant uh, weightage, the present government technically is also a coalition, but the ruling, the BJP itself, has a majority. So the ability of the government to sort of push through with all this 
presumably it will be much greater than in the previous situation. So the politics might well uh, encourage uh, uh, progress on these areas. Now, uh, most people believe that the... Uh, when I say most people, one usually means uh, rating agencies, because those are the fellows who pronounce <laughs> And I think most of them think that the growth rate this year will be around 5.7%. Uh, you know, when growth rates turn around, you can always be surprised at how much they bounce up. Uh, so somewhere between 55 and 6% this year uh, is not impossible. Uh, I would then hope that next year we do even better. Uh, but then the big challenge is how do we get to the longer-term objective, which is really uh, the medium term. What is our growth potential at Godiva? You see, I think that if you pose the issue, can India transit to 75 to 8% growth? I mean, an obvious reason why it can is that it did it before. So this is not a case where uh, some guys are making some impossible, uh, uh, setting some impossible objectives. Uh, it did it before. It's identified what went wrong. Hopefully it'll be set right. I think some of it is being set right. So why can't they get back? Now, but projecting forward, just because you did it for seven, eight years, doesn't mean you can keep on doing it. I mean, there's lots of experience in developing countries. I mean, Brazil grew at 9% in the 60s and then dropped to uh, amazingly low levels and continued doing that. So I think one needs to know what is it that's going to drive growth. And one needs to ask the question, is India well-positioned to achieve that kind of growth rate? Well, usually you would have some kind of Potential growth is some function of the increase in investment, the increase in labor. I've put in S divided by L as a skills ratio. This is not just enough to have unskilled labor. You've got to have improving skill content of labor. And then, of course, TFPG, total factor productivity, uh, which hides all sins and is the ultimate sort of... Uh, a repository of hope for all the guys who push economic reforms. Because almost every argument for economic reforms essentially says, if you do all this, TFPG will go up. I don't want to denigrate that, but I believe that that's true. But I'm going, to, I'm going to make just two points. One is that as far as the Delta K, which is the increase in capital due to investment is concerned, I think India is reasonably well positioned. I mean, even when our investment declined, it was around 32% or so. Savings declined a fair amount. They can easily go back. So having got back to normal, for India to target an investment rate of, say, 35 or 36% of GDP is not at all impossible. It's not easy, but it's not impossible. And I think on the labor front, it's well known, looking 20 years ahead, that except in Africa, perhaps, certainly in Asia, all the Asian countries are likely to be running into a, 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 a declining labor force, certainly China. India is the only one where the age structure of the population is such that the labor force is likely to increase. Now, that's what I think in one of these lectures, was one of these sessions was called the demographic dividend. But it can also be a demographic disaster in the sense of that, that many more people to give jobs to. And that is why skills becomes very important. And not just skills, skills that are actually relevant in the sense that given the circumstances and the kind of growth uh, that the economy can sustain, uh, are we giving these people the right kind of skill? That's a big issue. 
But I see no reason why that's something that the government has recognized and assuming that it handles that problem, uh, that'll be okay. And as far as TFPG is concerned, that's simply a matter of fixing all the other little things uh, which go in the portmanteau concept of economic reforms which need to be fixed. So now let me just, uh, I don't know if I'm, am I running out of time? I have a little bit more, right? Yeah, a little bit. Five minutes? Five minutes? Okay, well, maybe seven. Uh, can we go to this one? Are you? Yeah. So let me, you know, what I did was, uh, this is the difficult bit, because, you know. You can make it then. This can be, this can be made, this list of 10, 12, it's a round dozen. This could be made six, it could be made 35. And the reason, it's not that these are the only ones, because whenever I do these lists, somebody always gets up and says, but you haven't mentioned something. Uh, I'm trying to make two points here. One is that there are a number of things that need to be done. And second is, we shouldn't become puristic in the sense, it's not as if everything has to be done perfectly. But this is the kind of list where, if, say, over the next two or three years, people see progress in a lot of them, uh, it will send an extremely positive signal to investors. I think the, the point really is, what is it that investors are looking for? And I think that in the last two or three years, investors sort of gave up on India, partly because of the slowdown in growth, and partly because they didn't see much progress on reforms. Now, quite honestly, I don't think investors give too much of a damn about reforms if they were seeing continuing growth. The ability of investors to justify policy if it's generating 9% growth should not be underestimated. But if you let your growth slip to four and a half, you better be right on all these things. Otherwise, immediately finger pointing begins. So what are these things? Well, I mentioned the macroeconomic correction. I think it's important to identify what does it involve. I've listed four or five things. One absolutely have to contain subsidies. By the way, I'm not saying eliminate subsidies. I'm saying subsidies have to be contained. In the 12th plan, we had said, look, we ought to end the plan with subsidies no more than 1% of GDP or 1.3, and they were about 2.3. They've since then become more than 2.3. So you need to get back to what we thought was the sustainable trajectory of subsidies, and I think the new government has said that that's what they want to do, and I think that the existence of the unique uh, ID authority with this uh, uh, biometric identification of individuals, etc., enables India to do something very, very innovative. That is to introduce subsidy schemes which are strictly targeted, where the use of the unique ID will more or less eliminate, literally eliminate, leakages. I mean, the leakage might come from somebody getting qualified for it who doesn't deserve to be qualified. But as long as you're qualifying a total number of people that you understand uh, you can uh, provide subsidies to, uh, there won't be any leakage. So that's one very big possibility. And I think, I mean, uh, the government needs time to sort these things out, but at a, at a general level, I believe the Prime Minister has said that we are going to use uh, the UID and try to bring about subsidy rationalization. If he does that, that will be excellent. Second is implementing the goods and services tax. Now, this is one of the long pending things. I mean, even the previous government was gung-ho about implementing the goods and services tax. If you ask them, they would say that it's the BJP that prevented it from getting implemented. That doesn't matter. I mean, politics plays in whatever way it plays. 
the chances are that the GST will get implemented. Again, this is something which I think the finance, both the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister have said, uh, and they've even given a, a date for it, sometime in 2015 or April 1, 2016. This is, by the way, a huge reform. It's a, lots have been, a lot of work has been done. It will actually involve uh, quite a bit of IT infrastructure to be able to collate all the information because basically the central and the state tax system, indirect tax system, will go to a value-added principle and a common coverage. And the idea is that the number of rates will be drastically reduced, maybe two or three. Huge simplification, and if you ask businessmen, they frequently say they'll add one or two percent to growth or something like that. It'll certainly have a positive impact. I think we have to recognize that public expenditure on health and education has to be increased. You know, many people uh, uh, looking at India uh, very frequently say that, you know, we're spending too much money. As a ratio of GDP, that's not true. Uh, India's government expenditure as a ratio of GDP is much lower than Brazil. Forget about the UK. Uh, so there's no question that the, the, real, the real task is generate more revenue, uh, cut out all these useless subsidies, put more money into health and education, and also into infrastructure. At the same time, there's the challenge of making this money productive. And that's a huge challenge. You can, you can set up schools, you can hire teachers, you can improve the curriculum, uh, but somehow getting the teachers to teach uh, and put in accountability is a complex issue. Uh, and that's a major issue. Uh, and one of the points I want to make about this whole list is that you shouldn't think that this is what the government of India does, because actually in the states and the center, some of these things fall in the domain of the central government, some of them fall in the domain of the state government. And I think that came out in some of the sessions earlier in the Growth Week. But, you know, different states are showing very different willingness and capacity to innovate. So my expectation is that uh, with an environment where they know what needs to be done, we will see a lot of progress in some areas and not so much progress in other areas. Uh, skill development, I've mentioned, financial sector reform, that's very much on the agenda. Uh, agriculture, we need to continue the initiatives that are being taken. Uh, I didn't actually talk too much at the moment on um, inclusiveness. So there is a slide on inclusiveness. Can you put that up? Yeah, that's one. See, I think one of the interesting things about the whole inclusiveness thing is that internationally, it's always reduced to poverty reduction. That is because the World Bank uh, has long believed that the only way it can gain uh, credibility amongst the larger countries, the richer countries, is if it says, I'm focusing on the poor, which is excellent. But no government can focus itself only on the poor. I mean, even if the poor are 30% of the population. So actually, at least in India, uh, we, we recognize that there are multiple dimensions of inclusiveness that we have to look at. Clearly, poverty reduction is one. Income inequality across households, so there, frankly, our whole approach has been to avoid an excessive increase. Uh, we don't think that the income inequality across households 
has increased that much. So the, the debate is different between India and, say, the U.S. and the U.K., Regional inequality across states, that's a very big political issue. Urban-rural differentials, that's another big issue. Inequality across socioeconomic groups, scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, minority. Gender inequality. And then finally, social mobility, which is quite different from inequality. I mean, for the same level of inequality, you can have very little social mobility or a lot of social mobility. And my view is that, you know, a system will tolerate inequality more if it's associated with social mobility than if it's not associated with any social mobility. Now, the truth is, we don't even know how to measure all these things. I mean, there's no income distribution data in India, so we only use consumption data. Many of these things come out after five years. So too often, the whole debate is anchored on whatever happened 10 years ago. That was evident in the case of poverty reduction because, you know, for a long time we didn't have the data for 2011-12 and everybody was focusing on 93-94-2004 when there was poverty reduction but not very rapidly. But since this inclusiveness thing came onto the agenda, uh, the rate of reduction in poverty has accelerated very sharply. And that became evident, on, uh, documented only about one year ago. Now, if you go through each of these, what I would say, and, and uh, this is all income and consumption, and then there's the whole issue of access to essential services. I mean, inclusiveness also means that, you know, you have a reasonable access to clean drinking water, sanitation, health, and education. So I think in all of these areas... Uh, I think in, in poverty reduction, there has been quite substantial progress. In every one of these areas, also, there's been progress. But frankly, it's been less than what one would have hoped. And I think that's a very important. But you know, sometimes uh, major achievements get swamped uh, because other things come to the focus. I mean, one of the most important achievements in health in India is that finally, India became polio-free. And that happened, that was declared by the WHO uh, in February of this year. Uh, But they only do that when you've been polio-free for three years. So really, from about 2011 onwards, uh, there's been no case of polio. Now, you know, I think it's important to understand what that means, because prior to that, there used to be 120,000 cases of polio. And assuming that each of those persons was in a family of five, half a million persons' lives for the rest of their life would be blighted because someone in the family got polio. That's gone. Uh, But uh, on the other hand, there's lots that remains to be done. So I think in these areas, there's been progress. Schools are being created. Enrollment is going up. Uh, But the the focus of attention is shifting now to quality. Everybody says, yes, you've got the people in school. Even most of the girls are in school. What's the quality of education? And I, I often tell them that, you know, this is a problem that is bothering even President Obama. So we're not going to solve the quality problem very easily, but it would be silly to ignore it. So I think on all these, on all these dimensions, if the test is whether things are getting better, I think they're getting better. If the test is, are they getting better fast enough, I would be happy to concede no, and we need to be doing more about it. So that's so much on inclusion. Now, uh, I think, let me go back to uh, finish with this last, uh, uh, yeah. Um, 
I talked about skill development, there's agriculture, lots of things that need to be done there. Go to the next slide. Uh, now here, uh, one thing that was discussed a lot in the sessions yesterday was the whole business of improving the ease of doing business. Uh, the new government has actually given a lot of emphasis to this and has said that they are setting up groups that will try to improve the situation. It is a very important uh, indicator. You know, India figures very low in the World Bank lists of uh, ranks of people on ease of doing business. But, you know, one of the interesting things is that we, I forget, but we figure somewhere like 164th from the top. But if in each of the uh, dimensions uh, that go into that index, if each state were to become like the best state, our rank would go up to 64. So we're not talking about why can't we be like Taiwan. Uh, we're not talking about why can't we be like if, if, if Indian states could become like the best Indian state, which is not an unreasonable thing on ease of doing business, we would see a huge impact over the next few years. Obviously, encouraging foreign investment, the, the government's been very clear about it, and so the, that, that openness continues. Uh, urbanization, another new challenge, difficult, because we are suddenly, we're growing faster, and we'll be urbanizing much faster. And there are lots of difficulties there. I mean, it's easy to list that as a policy. But, you know, when you translate that into what is needed, the institutional restructuring needed and the empowerment needed is a huge challenge. Uh, energy management. Now, that is, I think, something where we've made some progress. We need to make a lot more. And I think it's doable in the next three years or so. Uh, we need to promote energy efficiency big time. We need to expand domestic supply from all sources, but especially green energy. And we need to deploy regulatory instruments and rational energy pricing. It's the last, by the way, that's the most difficult uh, in practice, not just in India. But I think this system of gradually adjusting prices seems to have been accepted so far. So I would not rule out that if the government uh, devotes itself to this very uh, determinedly, uh, over the next three years, uh, India would see a very substantial improvement. And I think that's extremely important because uh, India's ability to achieve high growth is crucially dependent on achieving energy efficiency, and that's not going to happen if prices don't support it. And incidentally, all the benefits for climate change will come as a consequence of that. Uh, I'm not going to talk about water management. That's a new issue. It's a huge issue, and it's actually more difficult than energy. And then there are, of course, two familiar, uh, three familiar things, land-related transactions. I mean, anything we can do to make those tra transparent and easier uh, would make a big difference, and they're an important part of the ease of doing business. We need to reform labor laws. This has politically been a very difficult issue to touch on. The government is now talking about it. The states are now talking about it. I mean, three or four states, one Congress state and two BJP states have put forward state laws which actually reform, liberalize in various ways the labor legislation. And under the Indian system, uh, since this is, a, this is an area where uh, the central legislation prevails, unless the center agrees to let the state's legislation prevail. So it is in the hands of the government to simply say, well, if the states want it, I mean, that's part of decentralization and autonomy. So I'm hopeful that we'll see something there. And last is the business of dealing with crony capitalism. 
You know, I think uh, not just in India, across the world, uh, there's a profound distrust of the market economy because of the perception that actually it amounts to crony capitalism. I mean, I think even the Holy Father has expressed grave doubts about the, the impact of the market economy. And this is a little exaggerated, I think, but the main reason, I think, is that there's lack of transparency and there's not enough competition. And, of course, on the governance side, you know, when there's wrongdoing, you have to be able to act swiftly. Now, all these things are high on the Indian uh, public debate agenda. Uh, how effectively we are able to handle it, that's a different issue. I mean, in India, you know, uh, you can't make progress unless everything is first identified and debated. And my view is that most of what I've said is being identified and debated, and actually a kind of a consensus is building up. And the rest is political leadership. I and mean, how do you manage to get some of these things done? But my l concluding remark is that if, if there's significant progress on most, not all of these things, uh, I think it will not be difficult for India to get back to 75 8%. The macroeconomics will certainly sustain that. Thank you. Montes, thank you for uh, laying out the policy agenda for the next government. And uh, Nick, you want to uh, make some comments? So I did it for me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Francesca. Thank you very much, uh, Montek. I've had the privilege of. Um, listening to and arguing with Montec for um, about 45 years. So, uh, and I've never, never stopped enjoying it. I've never stopped learning from it. Um, there are a number of us who have, who dine out on some of uh, Montec's aphorisms. One of my favorite is that you have to understand, Nick, that uh, in India there is strong consensus for weak reform. <laughs> and, but there are uh, many more. Um, w what I wanted to do was um, not to take issue with anything that Montec has said. I thought it was a very thoughtful analysis of uh, where we are and where we might go and how we got here. Um, I want to take uh, to complement what Montec had to say by um, taking a little more structural view of what's been happening to the structure of the Indian economy and to Indian society and demography, and to look and speculate a bit further forward, but in the spirit of the story that uh, Montec, Montec set out. And in so doing, I'll make an argument, which is sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit, but it'll have to be brief, because otherwise Francesco will stop me, and that, that is that there's a lot of growth potential in inclusion. If the slowest Indian states, where are large numbers of so-called Bimaru states, are not far off half the Indian population, if they, um, if they really started to uh, move more quickly, if they became more included in the Indian growth story, then the Indian growth rate would go up. Um, the the um, participation rate in the labour force of women in India is you know, difficult to measure these things, conceptual problems, but it's ballpark around a third. 
if that went up to two-thirds inclusion, that would have a very powerful effect on the growth rate. If those with little education in India um, gained some more, that's inclusion, and it would have a powerful effect on the growth rate. Now, I think the kind of statement I made is true for many countries, but the numbers are such that it's particularly powerful for India because the weight of the population in the poorer states, the low starting point of, uh, of labour force participation for women, and the low starting point for education. So we sometimes think about how do we make growth inclusive. Well, there is a, an argument in that direction, but uh, I think to think of inclusion as a driver of growth rather than a facet of growth, I think, is uh, of real value. Now, um, having said that, let me... Um, I'll, I'll bring just a few perspectives to that story to illustrate what I've said. Now, those of you who know me know that I've been working in one village in uh, Muradabad district of UP for 40 years, and we've got data going back to 1957. There's a 100% sample survey of that village, uh, six of them, one for every decade since independence. So whilst some of my life is uh, devoted to the planet and the climate, the core of my life is devoted to one small village in India. But what's happened there is remarkable and illustrates some of the things that Montek's saying and also allows us to speculate a bit about what might happen next. For the first 25 years of our 50-year period of close data uh, from um, the uh, mid-50s um, to the uh, early 1980s, growth in that village was driven by intensification of agriculture, largely movement to double cropping um, through irrigation, uh, two crops a year through uh, irrigation, and that came with uh, greater use of fertiliser, greater use of um, improved seeds, particularly hybrid varieties associated with wheat. Um, but that was an agricultural-driven growth story. Since the... Uh, early 1980s, the next second half of that 50-year period, has been much more about the inclusion of that village in the economy as a whole. So many more people from that village have started to get jobs outside the village. Even within the village, the uh, income from agriculture uh, starts to fall as people get involved in services, and particularly services, but some aspects of uh, construction, manufacturing, and, and so on. So that's a story then of a village getting included in the growth story of the nation and that actually driving the growth of that village um, during this period. It's a village which during that time, because it started to see the kind of churn that, in, that integration with the outside economy brings, that you've seen inequality go up and mobility go up in much the same spirit as Montec was describing and much less worry about I'm not celebrating inequality going up, but much less worry about inequality going up because it's associated with a lot of people at the bottom end of the spectrum getting life chances, indeed chances to work outside, that they didn't get before. So that's a way in which the structure of the Indian economy is changing, which allows you to speculate a bit further about where it's going. Now, I do not believe yet that that village, and I think it's probably true of India as well, is seeing education as a driver of growth. But I think that's what's coming. Uh, the story of Palanpur is a story of inclusion in the big economy as a driver of growth in the last 25 years. Education's coming. It's beginning. Um, still very low for girls, but it's coming. 
So that, I've said about women in the labour force being a potential driver of growth. Education, I think, which has not yet, at least in that village, been a driver of growth, is coming. And I think that's true of India as a whole, particularly um, for women. So what you see there, then, I think is a, is a story of potential, potential through inclusion, through poorer areas growing more rapidly, through poorer people in uh, uh, in those areas getting better life chances and women in particular are getting more involved in the, in the labour force and uh, education. So that is an optimistic story of possibilities. But what we have to try to do is to think about how policy can realise that potential. Investment will be a big part of that story. And let me just, having said something about Palanpur, say a few words um, about the investment story because that period of very rapid growth in India, as Montek said, was associated with high investment, the 30-something percents of GDP, and uh, that was associated with high corporate profits and corporate saving, funding that investment. So um, switching back into Montek's story, maybe during the course of the discussion, Montek, you could say a little bit more about corporate saving and corporate investment and Profits as drivers of that. It was a bit like a good old... I studied in Cambridge in the 1960s and we listened to Nicky Caldor and, and so on, where the great story of investment was the story of profits and the story of savings out of profits. Marxian story, of course, as well. And I see the noble Lord Desai uh, even smiling in the uh, audience as I refer to profits and savings out of profits as financing investment. But that's been a big story of Indian growth, and it would be nice one deck to, um, perhaps in discussion to, we could to and fro a little bit uh, on that one. Finally, um, let me switch up to the more planetary story, having started with the micro-micro story and the Indian village. And I agree... This is really an underscoring, an agreement with what Montek said and to suggest that it is enormously important. What happens? Uh, cities around the world around 70% of greenhouse gas emissions. Population in cities now about 50% be rising to about 70% in 2050. And that will be in, a big, big part of that will be India. So what happens to India's cities is enormously important. Atlanta and Barcelona, um, A and B, Atlanta and Barcelona are roughly the same income, roughly the same population. Uh, emissions from transport alone in Atlanta are about eight tonnes CO2 per capita. From transport alone, Barcelona less than one, less than one um, tonne per capita on transport. Why? Well, those of you who've been to Barcelona and Atlanta will know that Atlanta is hugely more sprawling than Barcelona. Now, Barcelona is what Barcelona is, and Atlanta is what Atlanta is. The challenge in Atlanta is not to uh, suddenly uh, compress it in an in enormous vice, because you've got to do that. The challenge is to help people get around through public transport much more efficiently. But... It, India's cities will be new. Um, of course, existing cities will expand, but so many of them will be new. So the potential for city design, largely around the energy efficiency of public transport, 
is enormous. The same is true of buildings. So the big, big choices associated with urbanisation around the world that will drive in large measure, I'm just talking about transport, but I could go on to buildings and so on, is enormously important. And India is at the heart of that story. So I think that will be a very special feature of India and the world, where India can do much better for India itself, much better for India's cities, whilst doing much better for the world as a whole. India also is, um, and this was a... Those of you who um, read the uh, outputs of the... Uh, how many have been on the uh, website of India's uh, planning commission in the last two weeks? Well, it's not bad. There's maybe <laughs> eight or nine or ten. But uh, in, uh, in May, there was a very important document on low-carbon growth in India which changed the perspective in a radical way. It was a nice little gem that uh, Montek left on the doorstep, and uh, some of us are appreciating that. And, you know, arguing powerfully for energy efficiency. <coughs> I gave the transport example, but there's so many other examples. And drawing attention to the fact that so much of India will be on grid, par- on grid parity for solar, that means that solar energy will have the same kind of cost, solar photovoltaic energy, electricity, photovoltaic solar voltaic electricity will have the same kind of local delivered cost per kilowatt hour as the current structure of the grid. So huge potential in energy efficiency. I just gave the transport example, but it's huge potential and very important because of the urbanisation and huge potential in um, particularly solar PV. And let me just note in conclusion that uh, Prime Minister Modi, one of the er very early statements he said is that he wanted to bring um, solar to light up the homes of 400 million people without uh, electricity by 2019. Note 2019. Some people would say 2020, and you uh, you all know the Indian concept of five, ten minutes. You know, it's... um, I have been working there for a long time. Um, <laughs> if you say 2020, it's oh, 2020-ish, maybe 2025, close enough to 2020. He said 2019. And that's the end of uh, what he would regard as his first term. And, um, <laughs> but it, it shows that, that you, you would not have said that, I think, in an India where solar power hadn't become so cheap. The economic realities influence the kind of ambitions you set, and that, of course, is a wonderful example of um, inclusion and growth, and uh, let's hope it comes about. But thank you, Montague. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. We have uh, a little bit of time for questions from the audience. There will be roving microphones. While you uh, make yourself uh, visible by raising your hands and think about your questions, let me uh, start uh, with a question on my own. Uh, I want to go back to the first slide with the uh, growth figures. Um, as you pointed out, there is this striking comparison with China, which even at the best of times, as you pointed out, is still, you know, st- still doing two to three percentage points better than, than India, 2.5 percentage points better than India. Now, very strikingly, then, you discuss the drop to 4.4% for India, and then you describe an agenda 
to go back to 7%. And I was struck by the fact that the agenda was not to go back to Chinese growth rates. It was to go back to a, a, go, a gap of 2 to 3% from China. So I wanted to understand a little bit, but we haven't talked about the, the causes of this yeah. persistent <clears throat> gap. And uh, are you as resigned to that gap as you sounded? And um, connected to that, a lot of the policies you described, uh, there was a long list of policies to go back from 4.4 to 7%. And uh, you concluded almost the description of any, every one of them by saying, of course, this is politically difficult. And then one is naturally led to think about, well, in China, they're not as politically difficult because it's not a democracy. And so final thought is, is this persistent gap between China and India the price that a country has to pay to be a democracy? Um, two points, actually. One is that um, the reason I chose 75 to 8, uh, I think if you make a comparison with China, actually China is expected to slow down. So I don't expect China to keep growing at 10%. In fact, most of the analysts will say that China will probably grow at 65 in future. Whether they've accepted that or not is another matter. Uh, so in growth rate terms, uh, I would expect that India should go faster than China. But remember, we are sort of, you know, half their per capita income, or less than that, actually. So China's, we're not, it's not going to be easy for us to overtake China's per capita income, because that's a 30-year advantage. But, you know, the important thing, we're not in this business to race against A and race against B. We're sort of, what's the best we can do? Uh, so my guess is that 7.5 to 8 in the current circumstances, is a pretty good... Uh, most people, uh, the World Bank and all those kind of guys, they would probably say India can't do better than 6.5. So I'm saying we should do 1% more. And I think they tend to underestimate the supply-side factors. I mean, there is, there is in a lot of the international organizations a kind of a inherited assumption that growth spills over from the industrialized world and since the industrialized world is going to slow down, it's sort of difficult to imagine that the poorer countries can grow faster. But I think one of the key things that's happening is that the poorer countries' growth is a little bit more endogenous and less dependent. That doesn't mean it's independent. I mean, you know, but it is more endogenous, and I think it's perfectly possible for that to happen. Uh, that was the main... What was the, I think you made one other... Well, I mentioned the cost of democracy. But, uh. Ah, the cost of democracy. Well, I don't view it as a... There are a lot of benefits to democracy. The problem is democracy is not added into the GDP. Otherwise, we might be quite well. So it's not a market... It's not, since it's not a traded good, it's not exchanged, uh, we, we don't... It doesn't, it doesn't show up. Uh, the... Uh, I think if India does grow at 7.5-8% for a decade or two, then during that decade or two it would be growing faster than China. Um, okay. I think 65 7 China make, make, makes sense because it's uh, gained so much from um, penetrating international markets and it now has to drive itself much more internally and that's a different kind of uh, challenge. Um, and that's going to be true for developing countries around the world. I mean, if you take PPP, 25 years ago, the developing world was one-third of total world output. Now it's about a half, and 25 years from now, probably about two-thirds 
Well, when you're two-thirds, then that's the big driver, and that's what's going to take it forward. The second thing, I think, is that India, looking at China, can avoid some of China's mistakes. And um, if, if you take the recent WHO-OECD numbers, the uh, social cost of air pollution alone in China is about per annum 11, 11% of GDP. Immense. That's outdoor air pollution alone. In India, it's about 6%. And you know, 6% is bad enough of GDP being lost just on air pollution and its effects. And one thing that India, I hope, will do is to look ahead and recognize the difficulties that China's got itself into on the uh, pollution front and think about how to avoid that. And it has a chance, of course, yeah. because its urban area is, uh, fraction population urban areas is so much slower. So people often think about you know, learning, following China's example, learning China's lessons. And China's getting pretty good at learning lessons from itself. And, th and it has, has been for a while. But that's the lesson that's come through most powerfully for them in the last four or five years. And they're changing, and India has an opportunity to avoid getting too deeply. It's already fairly deeply, but still more deeply into that problem. Okay, I suggest that we start with the questions. And um, I suggest we take maybe three or four in a bunch. And then, uh, then we are. So let's start from the left here, third, third row there. Uh, thank you for the fantastic talk, and uh, I just wanted to um, pick up on the idea of decentralization. Both of you mentioned the importance of cities in the future of India's growth and the uh, impacts both on growth and the environment. And you mentioned decentralization certainly at the federal level, and there was a, some hint uh, in Montag's talk about um, empowerment in the cities, but you didn't really indicate who, who you thought needed empowering. And I was wondering if you could mention a little more about actual... Um, sub-state level government, uh, local government, the municipal governments, and the role of cities, certainly you know, the, the major cities, but the uh, you know, B and C level, D set level cities, uh, in terms of their own management um, and the innovations they can bring in policy and otherwise. Thank you. Okay, sure. Shall we bring one here? Uh, thank you, Dr. Alawali, for a fascinating uh, talk. Uh, my question is on foreign capital. India could do with a lot more foreign capital, especially to, to fix its creaky infrastructure. Indeed, foreign investors would love to invest more in India, but it's the ease of doing business in India, and you, touch, and you touched upon that, that it's around 116 on the table, but could come down to 64. So my question is, what stops the poor states who are way down in ease of doing business, to come up to the level that you spoke about, and how could that be improved, please? Thank you. So, thank you for such a wonderful talk. Uh, we all know that the Planning Commission has played a very important role in the past decade in the Indian economic policy making. Recently, there have been reports that the new government would dissolve the Planning Commission and would replace it with an economic think tank. How do you think this would impact the Indian economy, and what is your opinion on this? So. What the I, I, you know, I didn't get the full question. What were you saying? Uh, recently, there have been reports that the Indian government, the new government, would dissolve the planning commission and would replace it with an economic think tank. What yeah. is your opinion on yeah. this, and how would this impact the Indian okay, One more before um, up there, the, uh, green, green jacket, blue, turquoise. Um, 
uh, we uh, all heard uh, thank you for the talk firstly so sorry my question is going to be environment centric a little bit so we've heard talks about how we should invest more in infrastructure in energy and how you know we should also invest in education and how important cities are going to be to shape the future so can we just not put all these goals into harmony for example we could when we're thinking about education we could just uh, 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 we could bring some kind of money into education which focuses on energy and then energy in turn would i mean we could just bring all these things in sync because nobody is looking at the larger picture when we are allotting money we are allotting money to education we are allotting money to energy but something yeah. to look some body which could be just at the top which could look at all these things together so that everything is harmony because everyone's doing their own thing and it's not amounting to i mean it's not very much in sync because china was doing its own thing and it ended up doing even though it had the advantage of iron hand of the kind of government they have even then they you know uh, like uh, uh, they caught it, they got caught into the trap of air pollution and all of that so okay. if we could just harmonize okay thank you you want to take a stab at this this question well yes uh, <clears throat> okay shall i should i sort of go in reverse order um i think the question that the lady asked about uh, you know weighing the as least as i read it i mean people talk about education people talk about infrastructure at one stage you seem to be harking back to some stalinist super authority that would fix all of this <laughs> i don't think that's going to happen and i'm not in favor of it either but you know the broad strategy that's been evolved i mean i can't actually speak for the new government obviously except as a citizen but i think what i'm saying uh, reflects at least what the new government has been saying I don't believe there's going to be any difference in view that education and health are important. Uh it'll be the same. I don't think there's going to be any difference in view that infrastructure is important. My own guess is that the first priority for public resources has to be in health and education because these are not services that should be priced so there isn't a revenue model you can invent some for high end sub but basically this has to be paid for by the state who delivers it is a separate issue and that's a very controversial one i mean the moment you start saying why don't you have vouchers there'll be howls of protest but nobody has any doubt that this has to come from the central government and you know my guess is we probably need to put an extra central and states together an extra 1.5% of gdp into education and probably an extra 1.5% of gdp into health that's 3% of gdp that has to be mobilized now obviously it's nice to say let's also do infrastructure but there are resource constraints i think the strategy that we were following was to say that look in some areas of infrastructure it has to be done by the government but infrastructure is amenable to public private partnership in many areas that's been demonstrated in india in some of the new airports for example very good very efficient i mean had we been relying on public resources to build those we just wouldn't have had money for schools and hospitals i think the same thing is actually true for many roads that we could frankly if we were to privatize the railways which i'm in favor of but i don't think the previous government never said it and i don't think the present government has said it You know the railways is uh, the Indian railways pretty good operation given the resource constraints they work under. 
I mean, the number of millions of people they move and the average accuracy is pretty good. And as a matter of fact, if you converted it into a corporation, it would be the least indebted corporation in the world. So its ability to borrow simply on the strength of a revenue model, all that it needs is rationalization of fares. Uh, so, I mean, it won't happen this year. It probably won't happen next year. Uh, but who knows, three, four, five years down the road, a lot of infrastructure can be done. But my personal view is we should get out of the notion that is going to be funded by the budget, except in the backward area connectivity. We're going to send build roads to the northeast in some of the uh, what were called the red districts uh, where there's a lot of uh, domestic unrest. Yes, you need to do that. But a lot of the major infrastructure, the scope for bringing in private money, if you have a revenue model that will sustain it, is very high. And, you know, when the revenue model doesn't sustain it, you can have a capital subsidy. So you could build three times the infrastructure with the money you have than if you spent the whole money on public sector delivery. So that's my answer. And I don't think you need... Uh, you don't need a body uh, uh, at, on the top deciding it. You just need to agree on the principles. And if that happens, uh, the rest will follow. Planning commission, think tank. Actually, the government, ha I mean, you know, on every subject, everybody in India speaks. Uh, <laughs> on this matter, some of them have said more than one thing. The government has actually been quite quiet. I mean, my, what I know is that the government has said, we want a new body. We don't want, and fair enough. I mean, I'm in favor of restructuring. We were doing a little bit of restructuring ourselves, although my colleague Arun Myra described that as uh, redesigning the airplane while flying. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's a good idea to, they have a break, so they're going to do something new. They've, they've sought comments. Even I was asked to give my comment. I, I mean, I was told that we're, we're not making this public, so I'm not revealing. Uh, so we'll know what will come out. The think tank idea, by the way, is I don't know what is thought to be a think tank. Many well-known economists in India have made the following recommendation. The planning commission should be converted into a think tank like the NDRC of China. Anyone who thinks the NDRC is a think tank is seriously misinformed. It's an extremely powerful part of the Chinese government. But I think what the Prime Minister said is that the Planning Commission should do less nitty-gritty and more longer-term stuff. Some of this, I mean, I completely agree with, actually, uh, Nick was very kind to mention the Low Carbon Economy Report and directed you to the Planning Commission website. By the way, the website will remain even if the new body is called something <laughs> You know, we, we had done something else, too, uh, with different help, actually. We produced uh, alternative energy scenarios. And just as, Nick, you said that from a political point of view, setting a target for 2019 is good because it's the last year of this term of the government, we didn't set 2050. We set 2047, the 100th year of India's independence. And the results are really quite dramatic. The choices that are laid out in that uh, alternative energy pathway, India can end up with either 5.6 tons of uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions or a little over two. Per capita. Now, two yeah, per, capita. per capita, yeah. Sorry, of course, per capita. Your Atlanta was also per capita, right? The eight and one, yeah. Now, I mean, uh, the choices are there. 
But to do that really requires a massive shift out of coal over time, not immediately, out, over, out of coal, into electricity, and a lot of the electricity has to come from renewable sources, solar and wind. And how to do that, and that's why I, I kind of passed over the issue of energy price rationalization. Quite honestly, as economists, that is the single most important thing. Uh, and I don't believe, by the way, that we will get energy efficiency without rationalizing the prices. Uh, it's difficult, as uh, Francesco pointed out, but you know, we've done some of it already. Uh, so I, I think uh, what I worry about is water, where people are not even thinking about what needs to be done. But I think on energy is the big challenge. It would be a bit, uh, uh, you know, self-indulgent to say, oh, yeah, it's a challenge and we'll do it. It's tough, but I think people are gearing up to take the right decisions. Now, um, foreign capital. Why don't the poor states do it? You know, to be fair to them, um, it's only relatively recently that the government of India has acknowledged this issue. I mean, in the last plan document, we had a whole blurb on it and said this is very important. The present government has actually set uh, very clear targets and groups have been set up in order to find out what needs to be done. You're absolutely right that the poorest states have the most gain. But, you know, on that definition, the poorest states should have the most liberal labor laws, but they don't. Uh, however, uh, when, when everybody talks about it, the prime minister talks about it, groups are set up, one thing is very clear. The, the poorer states should move to accept whatever comes out of this system uh, faster than the others. And I hope that they will. Empowerment in cities. That, you know, it takes too long to answer that question. But the bottom line is that our cities, and while we revel in uh, our democratic uh, structure, and rightly, in my view, we've not translated it into the cities. Uh, city governments are not empowered. Uh, taxes raised by the city, of course, go into the city, but not all of them. I mean, for example, the, uh, the property tax, which should be prime source of revenue. I mean, the rate of property tax is not left to the city. It's set by the government. So every time the state government wants to look populist, it can cut the property tax rate in half. Uh, the other thing is that in terms of, uh, you know, the Constitution Amendment, the 74th Amendment, had more or less said that uh, both for the rural village councils and for the cities, that we need to devolve uh, what are called the three Fs, finance, uh, functions, uh, functions and functionaries. What we've done is we've devolved the functions. So we've told the city, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to do that. But we've not devolved, we meaning the states, have not devolved adequate finances. And the functionaries are not actually under the control of the city. They're state government employees. And frankly, it's very difficult to ensure accountability if the uh, accountability structure of the civil service in the cities goes back, goes to the state government. Now, how to do this, uh, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a real challenge. And I think we need to do that. You know, in the late 1980s, uh, I, uh, I was a flunky on Prime Minister 
uh, Rajiv Gandhi's uh, state visit to China. And uh, we, we landed in Shanghai, and the ambassador told me that the prime minister is being given a dinner by the mayor of Shanghai. So I said, mayor of Shanghai? I mean, you know, protocol, I mean, India, no mayor would rank anywhere near that. And so I, I expressed a little bit of surprise. And then our ambassador said, you know, that Zhu Rongji, he's going to be the next prime minister. So, so I think there's a huge difference in the uh, political structure with which China operates cities and the way we do. Well, I regret that we are out of time, so there won't be time for any more questions. So what is left is to uh, thank uh, Monte and also Nick for lending their unique uh, insights and experiences to a fascinating. Thank you.